0: Good morning again. Welcome to Prairie View Christian Church. Thanks for joining us here this morning. Uh, with all the talk of pants, I will simply add that if Major League Baseball players can play in see-through pants, then we can wear whatever pants we want on Sunday morning. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just Google MLB uniforms when you get home later today. Now, I don't know about you, but with every day that goes by, it seems that we live in an increasingly anxious age. We often find ourselves stressed, busy, and overstimulated. We're stretched too thin, pulled in too many different directions, and constantly bouncing from one urgent crisis to the next. We tell ourselves that if we can just make it to the next vacation reach the end of this semester, or finish our current project, then we'll finally slow down. But the deadline comes and goes, and we still experience little in the way of rest, solitude, and silence. And if you put that all together, it's not exactly a recipe for human flourishing, physically, emotionally, mentally, or spiritually. You might say that we're lacking peace, whether of heart, mind, or spirit. And as a result, we fall out of step with Jesus's seventh beatitude, his statement that his disciples, namely those who serve as peacemakers in our fallen and troubled world, are blessed. But what even is peace? Why does our world so obviously lack it? And how do we find peace ourselves, much less make peace for and with others? Open up to Matthew chapter five, verse one. Feel free to use one of our Bibles if you didn't bring one or take a Bible home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for your son Jesus. Thank you for your spirit, your word, and your church. Lord, as we are in the midst of Lent, even though our church doesn't practice Lent as formerly or as explicitly as some other churches, we are in a season of preparing for Easter. Thankfully, we're in a season where the death and the darkness and the cold of winter is starting to come to an end and we're looking forward to spring. Lord, I also pray that you would be with us as we look forward to Easter, look forward to celebrating Christ's resurrection. On the one hand, we celebrate that every single Sunday, including today when we take communion. When we remember Christ's broken body and shed blood, we also remember Christ's empty tomb. But Lord, I also pray that you'd be with us between now and Easter, that we would be preparing our hearts and preparing our minds for that celebration of your resurrection. And Lord, be with us today as we pay attention to your word. I pray that you would bless our efforts to understand who you are and what you're saying to us in this time and place. And even if we've read these verses before, even if we've Read some of these verses the past few weeks, and it felt repetitive. Remind us that we're in a different place today than we were a week ago when we last read these verses. We're in a different place today than we were ten years ago when we last studied these verses. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would bear fruit in our hearts and in our minds, no matter how we're coming to it today. Again, thank you for this place. Thank you for these people, the opportunity to worship you here together. Thank you for the peace that you provide in and through your son, Jesus Christ. We love you. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Starting in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Before we attempt to understand how one becomes a peacemaker, we have to ask, what is peace to begin with? For that, turn back to Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Before God starts speaking, the created world is chaotic. There's no apparent sense of order, purpose, or beauty. It is quite literally a dark period of existence. The world was without form and void. But then God forms this world into something good and he fills it with all kinds of good things. He makes the land, animals, plants, the sun, the moon, the stars, just to name a few. And all of a sudden, this once chaotic world becomes a resoundingly peaceful habitat, conducive to life. And among the living creatures that God made to fill this world are a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. These people are bearers of God's image in a way that sets them apart from all the other good stuff God made. And God gives them the privilege and responsibility to be fruitful, to multiply, and to have dominion over creation. Adam and Eve are even placed in a wonderful garden with everything they could need and charged to work and keep it. At this point, Adam and Eve's existence is a peaceful one. They're living in harmony with the world, in harmony with one another, And in harmony with God. Genesis 2 ends by telling us that Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed. They had nothing to hide. And except for God, who's already proven himself to be exceedingly kind and generous, they had nothing to fear. Adam and Eve were thriving. But then in Genesis 3, things go south. Adam and Eve buy into the serpent's lies about themselves and about God. They strive to assert their own authority and autonomy and disobey the God who gave them literally everything. And as God had explicitly warned them, this was a disaster. The good world that God made is now tainted. Adam and Eve's relationship with one another deteriorates. You can see that in how they play the blame game when they're confronted by God. On top of that, their relationship with the world is strained. Their work of the ground becomes more challenging. And their relationship with God becomes distanced so much so that they're exiled from the Garden of Eden. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, the peace that they once experienced is no longer the norm. This biblical explanation of how and why our world became so unpeaceful helps us wrap our minds around what true peace really is. True peace is a broad state of well-being, health, wholeness, and flourishing as God's creatures in God's world. And it's only when sin enters the picture that all of those things become horribly hindered. The situation gets progressively worse in the chapters following Genesis 3. There's jealousy, rivalry, murder, threats, Vengeance, death, sexual immorality, debauchery, arrogance, and ambition, none of which make for any kind of peace. But in Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve's sin, God had promised redemption. Though at this point in the story, it's hard to see how that can possibly come about. It seems like the peaceful world that we read about in Genesis 1 and 2, where everything was good, is no more than a distant memory. That's the Bible's explanation for why the world that we live in is so chaotic. We've both inherited the situation from our rebellious ancestors And made our own rebellious contributions to the problem. So it's no wonder that we don't experience much peace. We're sinful creatures living in a fallen world. And left to ourselves and apart from God, we will not exist. We cannot exist in a state of true well-being, health, wholeness, and flourishing as God's creatures. But then along comes Jesus, preaching a sermon on a mountain and saying things like Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers. What do we do with a statement like that? Jesus says these words because even after all of our issues, God is still the same peacemaking God we encountered in Genesis 1 and 2. God is still interested in bringing order, purpose, and beauty to a world marked by chaos and darkness. In Genesis 12, Just when it seems like the story can't deteriorate anymore, God graciously calls a man named Abram to a peacemaking role in the world. Now, sure, there will be some bumps along the way, namely a less than peaceful stay in Egypt. But eventually, Abraham's descendants will be a source of blessing to all the nations. Then in the book of Exodus, God delivers Abraham's descendants from Egypt and begins escorting them to the promised land where they will experience peace, a land flowing with milk and honey. But right when they're about to enter, they fall short due to a lack of faith. When the next generation finally does enter the promised land, they experience a taste of God's peace. We see that in Joshua 21, 43 through 45, where for just a while, the people have rest. But sadly, that peace would be short-lived, once again due to the people's disobedience of God. The book of Judges is a time of endless turmoil for the stubborn and forgetful people of Israel. But they give God a suggestion that might help. They need a king. And 1 Samuel 7 verse 1 tells us that King David ushered Israel into a time of unmatched peace and prosperity. They had rest from their enemies. But we learn a few chapters later that even David can make the same mistake as Adam and Eve. He falls into sin, too. And once again, a time of relative peace, a time of flourishing, is disrupted. But maybe one of David's sons will do better. God himself is a peacemaker. We say it in his act of creating the world and his steadfast love for his people throughout the Old Testament. But we also see that humans have a knack for squandering the peace that God offers. Our consistent problem is sin. Whether it be sin of our own or the sins of others. It seems that until sin is dealt with, peace, that sense of health, well-being, wholeness, is nothing more than a pipe dream. Thankfully, God ultimately deals with that persistent problem of sin in the person and work of a son of David in the person and work of God's own son, Jesus Christ. And it's not a coincidence that the Apostle Paul loves to describe what Christ has done for us using that terminology of peace, reconciliation, enemies becoming friends. In Romans 5, 1, Paul says that by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, we can have peace with God. And at the end of the book, he calls God the God of peace. In Colossians 1, 20, Paul writes that Jesus Christ, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, has reconciled all things to himself, making peace. By the blood of his cross. And in Galatians 5.22. Paul lists peace among the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Meaning that Christians. Those indwelt by the Spirit. Ought to be peaceful people. Sinners are reconciled to a peaceful relationship with God. By faith in Jesus Christ. But Paul goes even further than that. He says in Ephesians 2 that believers who are now at peace with God are also at peace with one another, no matter our differences, our histories, and even our hostilities. So why does our world lack peace? Well, the root cause is sin, as basic as that might sound. But the good news is that our peacemaking God has fulfilled his promise of redemption for sinful humanity through his son, Jesus Christ. Therefore, believers have peace with God and peace with one another. And by the power of the spirit, we learn to live in healthy, whole and flourishing relationships with God, each other and the world. And lest we forget We also look forward to eternal peace in God's presence. The resurrected Christ will one day return in power and glory, and we will be at peace in the new heaven and the new earth that is even better than the Garden of Eden. Like we sang, we will feast in the house of Zion. That's when we will have true peace. Now, I'm aware that this sermon has been fairly abstract so far. So let's get practical. What impact does this beatitude have on our everyday lives? Well, first, I think it might be helpful to ask, what is peace not? What is peace not? Peace is not the mere absence of conflict. There may not have been any direct military confrontations between the United States and the Soviet Union during the Cold War. But those who lived through its most unnerving days might not call it the most peaceful time of their lives. Likewise, we've all sat at dinner tables where there may not be any yelling. There may not be any finger pointing. There may not be any physical violence. But you could still cut the tension with a knife. Peace is more than just the absence of conflict. The much bigger, more positive, truly biblical vision of peace is that state of well-being, health, wholeness, and flourishing as God's creatures in God's world. It's harmonious relationships with creation, with one another, and with God. And this is accomplished by faith in Jesus Christ. But peace is not the mere absence of conflict. Similarly, true peace is not just sticking with the status quo. In the book of Jeremiah, false prophets love to go around saying, peace, peace, when really there was no peace. They like to tell people that everything was fine. That you didn't need to heed those warnings from God about sin and repentance. And they were wrong. Even in the early church, the status quo sometimes left people neglected. People in a state that wasn't exactly peaceful. Just ask the Greek widows of Acts chapter 6. True peace doesn't just pop up on its own. And it isn't maintained by resolving to not rock the boat. Cultivating peace among God's people is hard work. It sometimes requires questioning our assumptions, reexamining our priorities, and making uncomfortable or inconvenient changes. But if God's people are willing to do that difficult work willing to forsake the status quo, especially in the context of the local church, then we can be a shining example of peace in a world that so desperately needs it. And it also has to be said that God's people being peacemakers does not equate to God's people being pushovers. That's not peace either. We said a few weeks ago that Being meek is not the same thing as being weak. And a similar principle applies here. In Matthew 10, Jesus specifically says that he is so important that it's worth dividing your family. Disturbing the peace, you might say, to follow him, if that's what it takes. And in Acts chapter 5, the apostles refuse to submit to the religious leaders when they demand that they stop preaching about Jesus. You're causing an uproar, but they keep preaching. Peacemakers are not pushovers. There are even times when taking a stand or drawing a line is necessary in the pursuit of true peace. Second, practically speaking, how do we become peacemakers? Well, I'd suggest that we start small. No offense, but I doubt anyone in this room is going to be responsible for the silver bullet breakthrough that achieves peace between Russia and Ukraine, China and Taiwan, Israel and Hamas, Republicans and Democrats, or Swifties and normal people. But disciples of Jesus can be sources of peace in our homes, among our extended families, in our cul-de-sacs, our apartment complexes, our classrooms, our break rooms, and our boardrooms. Because seemingly unremarkable actions, but actions done in the imitation of Christ by the power of the Spirit and for God's glory, small actions like forgiving an offense, righting a wrong, relieving one person's suffering, humbly serving when no one is watching, or sharing the gospel with someone who doesn't have peace with God can have a profound impact. We can be agents of peace by helping to restore what is lost, fix what is broken, and heal what is hurt in Christ's name. As Christ's disciples, we probably don't have the power to bring about world peace, no matter how many times you drink to it. But as a disciple of Jesus, we are called to be peacemakers in the small circle of influence where God has put us. And that's a good segue into a final practical and important reminder. We can't achieve peace on our own. Contrary to the many myths of human progress, the many failed quests for utopia, or the catchy but naive lyrics of John Lennon, we can't engineer, manufacture, or accomplish a true state of peace on our own. We strive to be peacemakers in obedience to Christ. Of course we want to be sources of well-being, health, wholeness, and flourishing in our corner of the world right now. But we also know that even our greatest efforts, even our most brilliant plans, are limited and fallible. For true peace to be seen, we patiently wait for Christ's return. We're not organizing any feasts in the house of Zion by our own power. We're waiting for Christ to come. Now we've talked throughout this sermon about how much we all need God's peace. But just for a moment, I will ask, do we really want God's peace as much as we say we do? After all, what's everybody's favorite part of a NASCAR race? It's the crash. Reality TV shows, with all their drama, apparently get good enough ratings to still be produced. And we can just eat up gossip about other people's dysfunction and lack of peace. I wonder if, deep down, sinners like us sometimes have a sort of twisted attraction to the chaos and the disorder that we've grown so used to. But God's peace is better. True blessing is to be at peace with God through Jesus Christ right now. It's to look forward to eternal peace in God's presence. And it's to accept the challenge of displaying that peace to the world. Rather than falling for the thrill or the allure of the chaos. But here's the thing. Peace with God requires giving up our autonomy and our control. It requires submitting ourselves to God's rule rather than trying to achieve our own. Living under God's authority means that we can't be the free agents or the lone rangers that we sometimes idolize and imagine ourselves to be. That didn't work for Adam and Eve. And it won't work for us either. But living under God's reign is what we were made for. And in the end, it's the only way we find true peace in this life or the next. We've now reached the end of our sermon. And we haven't even talked about the second part of the Beatitude. What does Jesus mean when he says that peacemakers will be called sons or daughters of God? Well, Jesus is not saying that we earn our standing in God's family by obeying this command. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago in the Beatitude on Mercy. But on top of that, Jesus refers to God as the disciples' father throughout the entirety of the Sermon on the Mount. Before they've had a chance to do anything that he's commanded them so far. But Jesus is telling us that as God's children, we are called to imitate our father. The same way that someone can look at you and say that you have your mom's eyes or your dad's grin. Or that some people say, I have the Halliburton nose. Or many people look at Calvin and say, he must belong to Olivia because he has her dimple. And they're right. Jesus' disciples ought to look like our father. We ought to be chips off the old block. When people see how we live, they ought to know who we belong to and say, you must be his kid. You must be his child. Our peacemaking God calls Christians to be messengers of his peace to those who lack it. He calls our church to be a place where those who walk through the doors can get even just the smallest taste of his peace. One way we resemble our father is by living in and offering to others the well-being the health, the wholeness, and the flourishing that only comes by knowing and being in relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. In him we find peace ourselves, and in him we can extend peace to others. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time we have together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Lord, thank you that you are our peace. You are our peace with God. You are our peace with one another. You are our peace in this life and in the next. Thank you for the violence that you suffered in order to achieve our peace. The violence that you voluntarily went through to reconcile us to God. Thank you for the price that you paid on the cross, your broken body and your shed blood, that we might no longer be orphans, but sons and daughters, that we might no longer be enemies, but friends, that we might no longer be rebels, but servants of God. Thank you for that great privilege, that great responsibility. Thank you that we no longer have to be in conflict. We no longer have to be at war with God, but rather we can have true peace as your creatures. And Lord, I pray that you would be with us as we go out into the world, again, in an increasingly anxious age where people seem to want peace. At least we say we do, but don't always seem to know where to find it. I pray that we would be messengers and bearers of that peace to a world that so desperately needs it. By the power of your spirit, help us be peacemakers, knowing that because of your son, we are at peace with you. Again, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. That concludes our service this morning. Thanks again for joining us. Uh, If you heard that sermon on peace and you mainly took away that, well, if I follow Jesus, then my life will be peaceful. Uh, Everything will be great. I'll be flourishing. I'll be in good relationship with God and good relationship with other people and good relationship with creation itself. Um, Yes and no. And we're going to see that, especially in the next two Beatitudes, where Jesus talks about threats and insults and persecutions and violence for the sake of his name. So Please don't hear this sermon and think that, oh, Purdue Review Christian Church teaches that if I just follow Jesus, everything's going to be great, because that is not at all what we're teaching. And you'll see that again in the coming Sundays. Uh, If you have any questions about who we are as a church, what we do, what we teach, what we preach, we would love to have those conversations with you. If you would like to know what it means to be at peace with God by faith in Jesus Christ, uh, by all means, please Pull someone aside, uh, an elder, a pastor, someone else you know and trust uh, and have that conversation. We would love to talk to you about that. And if there's anything we can pray for you about, uh, we'd love to pray for you, too. Uh, As mentioned earlier in the service, we have a couple things happening here in the sanctuary quickly after service. So uh, if you want to stay for lunch, whether you brought something or not, we would love for you to stay. Uh, If you want to stay for cornhole and see an example of how. Peace is still far away. Um, You can stay for that, even if you didn't sign up. Uh, But with that, I will close our service in prayer. Father, again, thank you for this time we've had together. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Uh, Thank you that we can have a real, true peace with you right now. Uh, Even if not every aspect of our lives are peaceful, uh, even if there is still Much work to be done in our hearts and our minds to bring us into harmonious relationship with you or to help us reflect uh, our harmonious relationship with you. We can have real, true peace with you right now uh, by faith in Christ. So, Lord, thank you for that gift of peace. I pray that you would be at work in us and through us to make this church and make our homes and make our community a place that is even just a little more peaceful uh, as we wait for true peace to come at your return. I pray that you'd be with us in the week ahead. Uh, Help us be peacemakers in all the places that you send us. Uh, Help us be bearers of Christ in all the places that you send us. Uh, And Lord, again, we love you. We thank you. We praise you. We say it so many times on Sunday morning, and we probably take for granted this whole peace with God language, uh, but we are simply grateful and in awe of the fact that we can approach you as sons and daughters, as friends and as servants. We're grateful that we have been reconciled to you by Christ. We love you. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.